Hello, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Misfits and Rejects. I appreciate you taking the time to come join me and hear all these really cool, inspirational stories that I get to sit down and have with these people that I meet around the world. If you like Misfits and Rejects, uh, you can support Misfits and Rejects on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows fans to support their favorite artists and help them create more content through monthly donations. And you can donate $1, $5, as much as you want. It's all very helpful. If you can't afford to help donate, that's all good. It does also help me if you share Misfits and Rejects. The more subscribers I get, the more attention I get, the easier it is for me in the future to maybe get a sponsor or two. But for right now, it's Patreon, so you can go to patreon.com backslash Misfits and Rejects and support with a monthly donation of whatever you want. It's all greatly appreciated. In today's episode, I sit with my good friend JJ Shepard. He's a really rad dude who's been doing some really cool stuff around the world, and he does a lot to give back to his local communities back in uh, North Carolina. He helps out with the local um, with the local YMCA and the local boys club and the local whatever that kind of help kids and guide them to becoming better human beings. And last but not least, I'd like to give a big shout out and maybe a quick moment of silence to the late Anthony Bourdain. Anthony was a huge inspiration to me. Never knew the dude personally, but loved everything he produced, whether it was his shows or his books. I've read them all and really liked him for what he was doing. And I was heartbroken to find out that he chose to take his own life. It was a huge wake-up call for me because in many ways I'm striving to design a life similar to what he was doing, where he gets to travel the world, he gets to sit down with cool people, he gets to enjoy their food, their culture, and somehow he still didn't find fulfillment in that. And that is a really interesting wake-up call to have to where you might just have to appreciate the path, and it's not the end game. It's the path, and as long as you continue to be fulfilled by the path that you're on, you can find happiness in the moment. And striving for that end goal and finding yourself at that end goal may not be everything it's cracked up to be. But with that said, a little quick moment of silence for Anthony Bourdain. We loved you, dude. Thank you for taking the time and hope to see you on the other side. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with J.J. Shepard. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit. In America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I have a special guest, somebody who wandered into town after many years of not seeing him. And we got to talking and started learning more about the adventures that he had. And I thought, since the podcast is about lifestyle design and adventures, J.J. Shepard would be a great contribution to uh, the story of how we shape our lives and why we do the things we do. Because he's done some incredible, incredible trips, like kayaking in rivers in Asia that I've never heard of. 
And I'm excited to have him on the show and t- tell us a little bit about that. So, JJ, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chapin. Good yeah, to be brother. here. Good yeah, to be back in Hegante. How many years has it been, dude? Uh, I think it's probably been four or five years since I've been back here. Yeah. You look same. You look good. Yeah. Yeah. Still scrawny and, <laughs> and frail. <laughs> With a little bit more money in your back pocket, though, you're uh, doing well in real estate now. and A little bit, yeah. And, and not yeah. doing the whole camp life, which you spent so many years doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, real quick. So, you were like totally dedicated to was it children's camps yeah i um i was the director of a all boys high adventure camp in western north carolina called camp carolina mm-hmm. and uh worked there for 17 years and it was a pretty remarkable place awesome owners and uh, they were super flexible and i could come and work the the busy season and i'd do anywhere from four to nine months working there and uh, live for free, free food, you know, insurance paid for when I was there. And I just hunker down, save all the money I could and then disappear, disconnect. And it was a pretty rad lifestyle. What does high adventure mean? Like, what does that entail? When you so do we it? did like rock climbing, caving trips, whitewater kayaking, horseback riding, sea kayaking, fly fishing, um, mountain biking, mountain boarding, took surfing trips out like the daily. coast. Like this is what you're doing every day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was more on the management side of things, but yeah, we had 220 kids, about a hundred staff, 14 vehicles, three ski boats, three school buses, full kitchen, full maintenance staff on 220 acres on like a five acre lake pond. And so I was just basically hired staff, trained them, sent them out in the world with the kids and tried to, keep the chaos under control. <laughs> now you're a manager, you weren't an owner, but I sounds like that's pretty lucrative for the owners. Is that? Yeah. That I mean, it, it, it definitely kind of went through some, um, topsy turvy days during the, uh, I guess the tech boom crash in the early two thousands. And why would that have hurt the, just because parents wouldn't, wouldn't can afford to send Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was definitely an expensive place to send your kids i'm not sure what the prices are these days but it's probably you know over a thousand bucks a week to send your kid there and the average camper was there how many weeks uh three to four wow some up to seven um but so the parents that really didn't like their kids to send away for seven yeah weeks. yeah it was always something easy they could hang over their kids if they didn't do well in school or uh you know if they were a little tight on cash because yeah i mean they they dropped some serious coin to to pack their kids away and disappear for a couple of weeks. Wild, dude. Did um, I mean you grew up in Atlanta? Yep, just north of Atlanta, a little suburb, Marietta, which has been swallowed by the city these days. And and always outdoors, doing outdoorsy shit, like you, traveling. Or what was your kind of childhood like? Yeah, I uh, I grew up in a neighborhood full of boys. There was probably like eight of us. We were nicknamed the Winwood Boys. Got in lots of trouble. Did lots of inappropriate stuff. And um, yeah, we just went outside all day and made rope swings and jumped in these nasty ponds and rivers and creeks and mudslides and went tromping through swamps and threw eggs at cars late night and built a treehouse and, you know, yeah. Nice, dude. It was good times. Sounds like it. When did you kind of figure out that you did have a lust for getting out of the States and, and trying to explore different parts of the world? Uh, I guess my first trip overseas was um, 99. I dated a girl from Newcastle, England, went over, met her family for Christmas. 
Um, she broke up with me Christmas Eve. Um, but, you know, got a little taste of outside life. And I traveled a bunch outside of high school. Um, first two years, did a bunch of road trips out west. Went on fish tour and... 97, I think, and traveled around. Is that how you met Gavin? Yeah, no. <laughs> Luckily, yeah, no. Gavin's a friend of ours. He's also in town right now, so we've all been kind of catching up on old times. Yeah, no. Went on fish tour, and then I don't think I went to a concert or a fish show ever since for like two years. And I was like, I'm over that. Just driving through the country, missing all the beautiful spots, following a band. Yeah. Realized I was miserable. You were? Yeah. Why? Just like, I don't know, gutter punk, drug scene. Okay. It was fun. I lived it hard. And then after probably a couple of weeks, I was like, it's kind of on repeat. And I'm like driving past Yosemite trying to get to the next show and would much rather go out in the woods and go on a backpacking trip or get amongst it instead of driving to another big city. And Would you say that was your first love as far as like mountains or or ocean like what have you found yourself gravitating towards most yeah i mean i definitely um started with the mountains the ocean came a lot later in life uh, kind of discovered that um probably early 2000s when i first really started to surf hmm. but then you also have a passion for kayaking right yeah so um moved up to summer camp applied for a job to teach kayaking or to teach uh, photography and they didn't have that position available and um, I had done a little bit of whitewater kayaking and they asked me if I'd do that. And I was like, yeah. So about three weeks before I started, I had a boat, never learned how to roll it. And, uh, was living in an apartment in Athens, Georgia. Um, and just figured it out on my own. And well, like in the bathtub. <laughs> no, and the, the, there was a swimming pool at our apartment. <laughs> so no, it wouldn't have fit in the bathtub. But yeah, I showed up camp and like took some instructor course and did like big wilderness, uh, um, first aid course, wilderness first responder course, and then started teaching kayaking. And we had some really good kids back then, and I was just kind of trying to keep up with them. And but we had some killer instructors. Like, meaning they were better than you? Yeah, there was definitely when I started, there was definitely kids better than me. What makes you a good kayaker? Like, how do you determine your skill level? Uh, I mean, it, you know, you're basically taking a big, you're crammed in this big piece of plastic with air inside of it. You're locked in with a neoprene spray skirt. And, you know, you got to be able to navigate through the rapids. And if you get flipped over, you got to be able to roll it back up. And, um, and then there's, you know, there's freestyle. So you can like paddle into standing ways or, um, recirculating holes and do aerial moves, front flips and cartwheels, essentially going, you know, 180 degree angle and just flipping over. So, um, it was kind of the, the heyday really of kayaking back in the late nineties, early two thousands when freestyle was really kicking off. And so I got really into that and paddled probably, you know, 150 days a year, which is pretty good. Did you ever get sponsored? Never, never sponsored. I definitely piggybacked on some friends and got deals on gear and, you know, got some, got some free stuff. And I guess Merrill sponsored us on a trip we did to Tibet one year. And, um, some of the kayak manufacturers would give us like boats at cost, but there was, there's never a whole lot of money in the whitewater kayaking industry. 
you know, the, the, the few folks making money or a salary position are like Red Bull or Adidas kind of sponsored athletes and few and far between. But yeah, let's talk about this segment of your life a little bit because I mean, traveling with a, a kayak, it's gotta be expensive. It's and pretty you traveled a lot around the world. I mean, you told me before we started like New Zealand, Tibet, India, Mexico. I mean, you're flying these places, obviously. So what kind of expenses that you're not, if you're not sponsored, that's coming out of your pocket, right? So the, the, oh, yeah. the camp is the camp that you worked at those few months of years paying for that or what? Um, I basically just hunkered down and saved every penny I could. And, you know, I was working six and a half days a week, um, from May till the end of August. So there wasn't really any opportunities to go and spend money. And we had great pro deals with, you know, a lot of the outdoor manufacturers and stuff. So I could get, get gear at cost. But essentially I was just, you know, I'd, I'd hunker down, say everything I had and, and then just disappear. So yeah, I mean, getting a kayak on the plane is hit or miss. I mean, the, my first kayaking trip overseas was to New Zealand and we showed up at the airport and we like made some little bags and put like, we'd heard bad stories and we, made like us windsurfing team emblems and like stuck them to our bags and we showed up at the airport and they straight up denied us getting our boats in the plane so we we stripped our gear down um out of our boats and just jumped on the plane on a kayaking trip with no kayaks and just figured it out when we got there and you know luckily new zealand's got a big kayaking scene and you know you can pick them up there like buy them or could you rent them? Yeah, you could buy them or rent them. Um, I had a good friend there that loaned me two of her boats. So me and another buddy just like made it work with the kayak she had. He bought one there and I used hers. It was one of those things that's like kind of a custom feel. Like if it's not yeah. yours, like you, this doesn't feel right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I was like, we were going to do like a bunch of creeks and stuff and I was paddling like a freestyle kayak. So you're, you're talking about nine feet versus like six feet long and you know totally different volume you know you on more turbulent waters you want a bigger volume kayak to stay afloat whereas in freestyle you want a smaller one so you're kind of using like a teeny tiny boat on some gnarly and these must be expensive right like five five six thousand bucks per boat no they're they're about 1200 bucks new these days and then you know if you get a hookup you can get them for six seven hundred dollars um, wholesale. So, so what was the rush? Like when you were going to do like these trips, you're going for the gnarliest waters you can find or like the most, the, the never ending waves where you can do the gnarliest tricks or what was your kind of rush from it? Yeah. I mean, I, the, for me, it was always about kind of being out in remote places, um, you know, where there's not other people, there's not, you know, human access. So, uh, or easy access. So in, in New Zealand, we would actually hire a helicopter to fly us up and we get dropped off and basically battle our way down for two days uh, on some of these rivers. And, um, on your way up, are you scouting it? Like you flying the ri- over the river say like, okay, we can do that. We can't do that with the walk that we would try, but you know, you, you, when you're 500 feet above a rapid, something that's like 30 feet tall, looks like a little ripple and, something that you know it's really hard to tell but we definitely you know we my buddy eden and i dropped in this one river uh the the mongo upper hokitika river and the last trip 
that people had done there was in 99. This is probably eight, nine years later. And the last trip that went through, someone died on it. So we were, you know, as all good adventures start, we were at a bar and we we're like, screw it, let's go up there tomorrow and just figure it out. So we hired the chopper. Bruce Dando flew us up there and we were kind of hovering and he, you know, he spent a little extra time because you're paying for fuel. Um, hovering over these three just walled in gorges and once you drop in you're stuck you know you might be able to climb out of them if you're lucky but for the most part you're just once you drop in you're fully committed and so you know we that was a pretty rad trip we dropped in and let's Break it down for the audience. These terms that we're using, dropping in. Yeah, you're not dropping off the helicopter. Like they, no, they no, set no. you down somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. You the helicopter would drop us off, and we we're like, all right, we'll. Uh, we had a pretty good program set up with Dando or Chopper Pilot, and we we're like, we'll see you in two days, or come look for us, and we'll pay you then. And so, um, or the money's in our van. If if we don't make it out, you can go break a window and grab it out of there for what we owe you. But um, yeah, he would he'd find a little gravel bed in the middle of the river and land the chopper down there and we'd pack, you know, a little bit of sleeping gear, some food and basically extra paddle, breakdown paddle in the back of the boat and yeah, just out in the middle of nowhere for and, and a couple these, days. Since it's such rough waters and you have light sleeping gear, like is everything always wet? Are you always wet on the um, They make some pretty rad gear. We you know this company Kokatat um, makes like a three-piece Gore-Tex dry suit, so you're you stay dry um, for the most part. I mean, it's got built-in socks and rubber gaskets around your neck and your wrists. Um, but in New Zealand, for instance, they have this amazing network of huts in the middle of nowhere, and so uh, there's a couple rundown huts up on this river in particular, um, but. There used to be hiking trails through there, but it's just so rugged it all grew over. And the Department of Conservation, like their Forest Service program, just abandoned the hut. So we, our plan was to make it to this hut and um, had like a little wood burning stove in there and some bunk beds. So it was, you could travel pretty light. And you made just, it to this hut. Yeah, yeah, we made it there um, after kind of bombing through and having to basically run some rapids blind without being able to scout them didn't really know what was below and you know so you did were, know somebody had done it before you so it was we like did doable we knew it was it had been done and it was doable um but it's they get a lot of rain and it things flood and so after every flood the rivers change and these are like there is a section there where it dropped probably 60 feet and went completely underground. And so you had to be able to get out of your kayak above that to walk around that section inside this walled in like 100 foot cliff side gorge. So if that access point wasn't there and available, you you're were, dead for sure. Yeah, you're dead for sure. And so, you know, we tried to get a look at it through a helicopter, but we just dropped in and into the gorge and you know took one rapid at a time and you know would try to stagger ourselves apart so maybe there was a chance we could work our way back out or find an exit point through there but even if you know we had to like climb out of the gorge it was probably from that point a four-day hike out back to 
our car. Which you're not supplied for. You don't have food. No. Yeah, we had food for like two lunches and one dinner. That's gnarly, dude. Yeah. Um, and you obviously kept traveling to various places around the world. Yeah. I'm really interested in hearing about you know your Asia experiences in Tibet because we, we shared a similar experience when you talked about you know the, the terrorism that was going on there. Um, during what the two, ni- late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. Um, but maybe talks through like how you got there because you were running tours at one point. Is that correct? In- um, yeah, I, I did some side work um, when I was in New Zealand. Met a huge international network of folks from the UK and from Scotland and New Zealand, obviously, and Norway, and um, got linked up with a company out of the UK and did some trips for them. But really to my first big trip to Asia was to um, Tibet, and um, whenever they take your boat this time, they did. Actually, I flew. I'd I'd left a kayak in um, New Zealand. I flew to New Zealand, um, and then I got a flight from New Zealand up to um, to China to Beijing, and then we flew from Beijing to um, from to Lhasa. So it was with a crew from New Zealand, from Scotland, from. Uh, buddy from Norway and uh, yeah we met up in Lhasa and we were kind of hanging out there for about a week acclimating to the high elevation and waiting on our tourist visas but we had to do all the research before we went there because you know obviously it's communist controlled it's we call it Tibet but in the Chinese mind it's China and um, we had to identify the rivers we wanted to go to to have permits to go into specific areas and on this trip, we had to hire like a tour company and, um, you know, they weren't on the river with us kayaking or anything or even really knew a lot of the sections we were dropping into or had much experience with it. But they, we had to be in a, you know, specific, with a specific tour company. So they, they drove us around. It's pretty, pretty cush actually. They'd like help set up our tents while we were on the river and set up camp and, We'd have like a nice cup of soup and a hot cup of tea when we get off the river. But our, our big kind of feature there, our focus there, was we we were um, trying to do the first full descent of the um, the Parlong Sangpo, which is a big tributary of the Yarlong Sangpo. And so we did, I think we started at maybe 18,000 feet and paddled down to about 6,000 feet over maybe 130 miles. How many days was that? That was probably 10, 10 days or so. And the top section was, you know, we paddled, paddled out of this glacial lake and and worked our way down. And by the end of it, I mean, it was the biggest river I've ever paddled. I mean, it's like probably triple the size of the Colorado or Grand Canyon. By the end of it, it was massive, just huge volume. Water you've never seen before. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, it dropped into some gorges where... Um, I mean, there's just no surviving them that we had to like climb up and hike around. And how does that work though with all your gear? Like, I'm still kind of. Yeah, there's 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 a couple different ways you can do it. On it, um, either self support where you are literally like loading your kayak up with a sleeping bag, a tarp to sleep under, your ground pad, all the food you need for the trip, um, maybe a stove. Uh, you know, camera gear, dry clothes, and you're, you're traveling super light, you know, so you're basically, you're not, you just have one pay, 
you have a dry set of clothes and you have your kayaking gear and you're you're in it and so um the tibet trip we actually were the chinese are great road builders and or you know put in roads so they can essentially eventually dam all these rivers um so we were able to kind of have our our gear in the truck and you know so we were we were living plush lives but then like places you know did a did a trip down the huma karnali river in um in nepal and we we chartered a plane landed on this high elevation dirt runway hiked down to the river about five days and that was it we had everything in our boats probably weighed a hundred 110 pounds each and paddled for 12 12 days maybe 180 miles and I think we started at maybe six or seven thousand feet in elevation and dropped down to about 400 um, so those are super rugged you know because you get to a, a hard rapid or a unrunnable gorge and you gotta I mean you're, you're carrying a hundred pound object that's awkward. object that's <laughs> awkward to carry empty and I mean some of these we were we were roping the kayaks up you know 300 feet from the gorge to so you had to like rock climb out and then rope them yeah up. sometimes we were scrambling up the the cliffs and um, throwing a rope down and then pulling them up which is just gnarly I mean so heavy and hard and then and then hiking for two hours like around this gorge up and over essentially just so you could get to a section where you could kayak again now is this like you have like a special backpack you can hold your kayak in or is it like literally like you like your, on your arms carrying like firewood you like put it on one shoulder or like put it on your head carry it like I mean, kind of like you'd see a porter like a Nepalese yeah like a, a Sherpa a porter carrying it in Nepal um, so that that was usually that would break you down pretty hard. So as far as all the rapids you've ever run, which one would you say is the gnarliest? I've never been a, what I call a stunter. So I don't like, I've never been into like going out and running like a hundred foot waterfall for a pretty picture. Like I've always enjoyed the journey rather than like one particular challenge. I like the, the long game, you know, like a, a two day or a three day or a four day, like, puzzle that you got to figure out piece by piece and so um hardest rapid i don't know probably some stuff in new zealand i, w I would guess or um you know dropped in some big gorges where it's like five piece you know pretty staunch rapid and then there's like a 30 foot waterfall to exit it you know and so if you mess up you're swimming flushing through just some manky gnarly stuff do you ever consider like making that more of like a full-time lifestyle where you were running tours out of tibet um i mean i did i did the guide service thing but to be honest i just i always found it was more enjoyable to to not work in the industry and just do it for fun like I, I got in trips in Morocco and um, New Zealand and Nepal and, um, and and enjoy those trips, but you know you're I could always make more money back home, kind of working at the camp and 
Um, but I'd definitely use those trips as like a free flight to get to places and then would um, try to get friends to come meet me there. And, and then What was the one story you told me about smuggling people in a bread truck in, in Tibet? Yeah, uh, that was in Nepal, actually. And um, there was a big taxi cab strike and they were... And I had clients flying in from Germany, from the UK, from the States, and the local cab drivers like set up roadblocks and they were forbidding everyone from all the cab drivers from driving to try to get, I guess, more money or to reduce the taxes the government was charging them. And so they were pulling people out of cabs and stoning them if they got, um, if they saw you picking up clients from the airport or around town. So... Um, I had folks in. I had to get them to the, to where we were staying. So I, I found a bread truck and talked to the guy as best I could and coached him into, you know, going to the airport. And I rode in the back, and we picked up clients. And it was like, welcome to this great adventure. And they climbed in the back of the bread truck, and away we went. How did they town. feel about that? when you? They were, uh, they seemed a little nervous, but, you know, I just kind of played it off as like, fun adventure it's like hey you know there's a little bit of unrest but we're just gonna hide in the back of this and try not to choke on diesel fumes but it's unlocked and if we need a fresh fresh breath of air it's open up on the highway yeah yeah you just came in recently to you know the nicaragua political situation that we're the political situation we have right now in nicaragua is such that there are trunk case roadblocks yeah um Describe to the audience what it was like at two thirty in the morning when you landed in Managua and drove out here to the beach. It was uh, there was definitely a little trepidation, you know, like not really knowing what was going on, how bad things were. I mean, there was whole, not a whole lot of media coverage in the states, and um, you know, we knew. I think at the time I landed, it, I guess like seventy people had been killed by the military or pro. Ortega folks, but um, yeah, we came in late night, 2 a.m., landed in Managua, and um, once we got a little little outside of Granada, there was pretty major roadblock, probably like 50 semis all just parked, and we zigzagged our way around them, and um, you know, there was a big band of probably 30, 40 folks there. At this time, it was probably 3 a.m., and handmade mortars and big old sticks with nails sticking out of them, sharp end out, of course. Like being aggressive towards you, or is it... They, just... No, not really. I mean, they definitely kind of came towards the car, and luckily we were with the cab driver, and he said he had a connection with those folks, and um, they chatted for a little bit and kind of waved us through, and we came through, and on the back end, it seemed like it was a little bit more of a rowdy crowd, and they charged us a little harder, and uh, but he... Luckily, the cab driver chatted with them, and um, yeah, we, we were able to pass through fine, but um, there's definitely definitely some serious shit going on here. But you weren't scared to come. I mean, you still showed up, and... No, no, I mean... Didn't hinder your decision. I, yeah, I was certainly, like, concerned with what's going on, but from what I could tell, you know, it's not... They're not going out. The protesters are going after the government, not going after tourist or you know they don't have beef with me they have beef with Ortega and, and um, you know I mean there's in these types of situations it's more the risk of the rowdy hooligans that are just using this as an excuse to 
you know, rob somebody or what have you. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't bring anything nice. I brought five pairs of shorts and five t-shirts and, and some flip-flops and surfboards. So, you know, I'll quite happily part with any of those, those items. To Did you ever encounter anything with the malice when you're in Nepal? Yeah. The malice were super peaceful protesters just know. ask for donations or they, yeah they'd they'd uh they'd stop you at a malice checkpoint and um they'd ask for a donation and they gave you a receipt for it as well there and it wasn't like an optional thing like it was like you need to give us a donation yeah and, give you they, a receipt. and if you don't <laughs> like you will get hit up again down the road by somebody else yeah yeah they uh yeah you kept your receipt and it easily worked worked in your advantage to pull that out when you could and uh but yeah was, i mean they were super friendly and i was i was through nepal when um I, I think there was a coup there was a coup going on then as well um i think it was the prince that killed his father or uncle or cousin you know they the bars and Kathmandu would have to close their curtains at midnight and and military would come through the streets and it was like a mandatory shutdown but you know there's people figure out a way around martial law yeah yeah but um do you like that sort of thing do you like being in environments like that i mean i mean i i don't enjoy it but i i do uh have to say like i enjoy challenging situations it's definitely when you feel like you're living the most when things are out of whack and not comfortable yeah. So how sure. do you how do you seek that out now? I mean, you're back in the states and you make good money in real estate, and I know you still adventure, but like, are you still seeking out the rivers and the rapids or the big waves or you know what brings you the most joy traveling wise nowadays or what type of adventure? Yeah, I mean, late, as of late, I haven't really been doing as many big kayaking trips as possible. Um, kind of been surfing a lot more lately as far as travel goes. Um, after lugging 120 pound kayaks around on Nepali buses and lifting them up and riding on top of the bus, um, there's something pretty uh, appealing about traveling with a surfboard and five pairs of shorts and five t-shirts. Uh, but back home, you know, we I live in a great spot for whitewater kayaking and still get out and do as much of it as I can and um, still enjoy the challenge of that. And um, yeah, yeah, so kayaking is definitely still a huge part of my life but not out exploring as much as i once did but hope to, to hope to do it again soon are you still pretty involved in um i know you're not involved in the camp thing as much anymore, but you're still pretty involved in just like youth and and getting them developing younger people towards <laughs> Lot of futures that are bright. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I um, I actually got roped into uh, a f- good friend of mine is the head of uh, fundraising for the local Transylvania County Boys and Girls Club, which is the, the county I live in. And um, she saw this great all male dance troupe called the Six Ten Stompers down in New Orleans, and they run raise tons of money for the community down there for all kinds of nonprofits, and she thought that'd be a great idea and so she approached me because of your dancing skills i guess she had maybe heard of my um dancing prowess and um yeah so started this group called the pisca thunder and we're a all-male semi-synchronized dance troupe 
we throw a couple big fundraising events every year and and help raise money for the boys and girls club but um yeah just basically old man style pelvic thrust air punches (laughs) semi-synchronized obviously you know velvet red jackets cut off jean shorts tube socks headbands just having a good time is that on youtube can we see that yeah yeah um Check out Pisca Thunder. Check out our Facebook page. Pisca, P-I-S-K? P-I-S-G-A-H. Thunder. I'm I'm not good at spelling right then. Let me see if that looks right. P-I-S-G-A-H. Yeah. Pisca Thunder on YouTube, folks. Pisca Thunder. And you can see JJ and his dance troupe who raised money for the Boys and Girls Club. through. Yeah. And so I think we did about $20,000 last year we raised and... Um, our, our local boys and girls club's pretty rad. They've got a big, you know, organic garden and lots of outdoor programs. They, they pick up tons of kids from the schools and their own school buses and look after them until five o'clock and do summer camp programs. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of as odd as it seems. I'm more of a dancer these days than a kayaker. <laughs> Still get a rush, dude. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a good time. We do some pretty elaborate stunts. Um, we got a new guy there who used to be a male cheerleader and, uh, being a buck 45 soaking wet, I am the, what they call the flyer. So I'm, I'm learning how to go aerial. Right. And, uh, you know, being 40 years old, I'm definitely concerned about getting dropped in my head and not being able to go on adventures because of a stupid dance routine. <laughs> That's so funny, dude. That's yeah. awesome. Um, real estate in North Carolina good these days? Like, do we uh, need to start, you know? getting some investments, some rental homes going yeah, on or what? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm kind of near the Asheville area, just south, about 45 minutes, but kind of work that whole corner, western North Carolina, and it's a pretty hot little market, but it's a, it's a great little lifestyle town. Um, Forbes magazine keeps writing stupid articles about how top 10 places retire, so we're getting inundated with lots of folks moving there, and, um, you know, good, good kind of four-season climate area where we have some winter but it's not too harsh and we have summer and it's not too hot and our the county we live in is about 70 percent national or state forest so there's a lot of a lot of natural resources to take advantage of but yeah i've been enjoying it a lot of autonomy work for a really cool small company what's it called uh looking glass realty looking glass yeah it's a big famous rock climbing rock in the area and, um, you know, we got like Nerf guns in the office that we can do battle with when we're a little bored or a uh, whiskey bar. Some of the local attorneys will come have a whiskey with us on Fridays after hours. So, what, after 4.30? Yeah, or 4. Yeah. <laughs> depends, on, depends on what kind of week it's been. Yeah, I love it, dude. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great gig and been a lot of fun, you know, kind of. Essentially working for myself after running a family business and managing the camp is what you're referring to. Yeah. Yeah. The summer camp, 220 kids and 110 staff. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously an adventurer. Somebody likes to seek out alternative ways of doing things. Do you ever see yourself trying to like cut the ties from the States and and try to be living abroad somewhere else? Either whitewater rafting, surfing, whatever it may be. I've definitely toyed with it. I almost um, kind of set up shop in New Zealand uh, many years ago and just uh, decided to kind of 
keep bouncing back. My parents are getting a little older, but um, yeah, I could definitely see myself setting up shop overseas for a couple of years and what have you. I mean, still close with family and want to be able to bounce back in between the two. So it makes a lot of sense to be somewhere that's easy in and out. New Zealand was a $2,000 plane flight to get back to the States. So it was, it was a tough little spot to get out of. Yeah. When you did plan your adventures, like to do the rapids and stuff, were you, was it um, really well thought out or were you just somebody who always jumps in the deep end, like personality wise? Um, I'd, I had done a couple trips, like did a trip to India where we didn't do any research. There was a local dude there named Shalab that um, has a killer place on the Alaknanda River, just north of Rishikesh. And, and we went up there and traveled around with him and basically he had these rivers planned out for us and we went and we just dropped into some gnarly ass shit that was not good to go and oh, wow. um so we, we we definitely found a couple gyms and a lot of these were like first ascent stuff where no one had ever paddled them before no one knew anything about them but he had kind of done some legwork and scouting um and so i was kind of the area was super rad, beautiful, great people. I knew there was good stuff there, but we were just kind of not ticking off the right sections of the river or the right rivers. Yeah, but when you say not good to go, what does that mean? Basically, unpaddable. You, you can't. Like, you wouldn't even try. You'd get there and be like, dude, what are you talking about? This is yeah, awesome. or we tried and we got to this, like, walled in, cliffed out, 500 foot canyon. And you can look down and see that the first rapids are like, you might be, you might be able to survive them, but then it turns a corner and you have no idea what's down there. And, you know, we'd climb up and over and try to look down into these canyons to see if it was possible to navigate through them. And it was just, no. And then trying to, you know, there's no trails, there's nothing around there. So it was just not good. But then you know, came back from that trip and was like not giving up on this area, got on like Google earth and you can like mark waypoints. You can see the elevation. You can, there's some websites where you can put in two different GPS points and figure out the, the distance between them. And so you could figure out average gradients of the rivers from those two points. And so went back with another crew, um, like two years later and we just, ticked off all these gems and found some super rad first ascents and on top of that like some really cool rivers where we hiked over giant pass down into a valley put on the river and, and made it out like three days later so personality wise do you think you're somebody who appreciates more just that like go and find out or like the the like plan strategically to make sure we have a good trip I like the spontaneous a lot when it works <laughs> fair enough um and i you know i it, as much as anybody i enjoy a little bit of a misadventure and you know maybe getting stuck out in a gorge planning on a three-hour trip and having to huddle up around a small fire in the middle of mexico and make it work but um yeah i i mean i at adverse situations again it's it's when you feel like you're living you know 100 what does von schnard say that, you know, if something doesn't go wrong, you're on vacation, and then yeah. it's not an adventure anymore. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I agree 100% that 
even though it sucks in the moment sometimes, like really fucking sucks. Yeah. But the story that you get to share with the people who were with you yeah. after in hindsight are just so magical. And yeah. The fact that you got to survive it is a beautiful thing. That, I mean, those bonds you kind of form with those people when you're, um, you know, stuck in a shitty situation. Like we, one trip to India, we, we got, uh, we were on this river and we, you know, these folks were waving to us up on the top of the river and we were waving back and we we're like, Hey, how's it going? And, and, uh, we carried on a little bit and they're still waving and waving and waving. And finally we pulled over and kind of walked up to see what they're doing. They're up on this road high above and it's a bunch of military official with machine guns. And they're like, come with us. We're like, okay. So we like loaded up in their, in their cars we had a driver in a truck, and so they split us up, and I was sitting in the back between two military guys, and I was like, oh, what kind of gun is that? And they let me like, like play with their gun a little bit, and then uh, they took us to this military base and basically arrested us for trespassing, um, for being on what they called forestry land, which they, apparently they own the rivers, and um, we were detained for 36 hours or so no food and basically our initial fine was $500 and we spent 36 hours negotiating down to about 100 bucks and our other option was go in front of court and wait a month in jail and maybe get a harsher fine in a jail sentence so yeah, but we we hunkered down, and those those boys I did that with were, you know, some of my best friends of the world. We we're just sitting there like, oh shit, how are you negotiating, dude? <laughs> um, we had that was the year we had our buddy Shalab, and so he he was an Indian, um, and so he obviously spoke the language, and and the head military official spoke, um, or actually forestry official. Um, spoke some English as well, but you know, he would like him or his assistant would come in maybe like eight, every eight hours or something. We'd have like another sit down powwow, and yeah, it was gnarly. And then once they let you go, this dropped you off back on the river and you kept going, or you had the drive? We uh, jumped in the truck and we we'd we kind of had, had this rule. We knew that like maybe some of the stuff we were doing wasn't a good idea, or like we had to be cautious because when we were around. Local police or military, either someone just looking for a bribe or shakedown. And so our normal rule was like paddle one river, move quick, pack up, get the hell out of town before anyone has a chance to like shake us down. And we found this great river, and it was so much fun. We did it again, and it was the second second trip. You broke your own rules. Yeah, right? and then trip two years ago or two years later. Same thing, found a great river, paddled it the second day, and a little local police officer like tried to bribe us and or lock us down and I was able to kind of talk our way out of that a little quicker and it's like, Okay, well, peace, we're out of here. But, it's always something, dude. Yeah. But at the same time that's part of the adventure, like you said. Yeah. And you get used to it, like it doesn't bother me anymore to have somebody try to get money out of me no Storm. it's like it's part of the game and you know how to play it at this point yeah and if you're super patient 36 hours decreases the amount by quite a bit yeah. You know? yeah. and if you would have said yeah let's go to court they probably would have been like a week and then been like fuck just leave dude yeah you know, like, yeah please get out of our country yeah 
or get out of our compound. Well, that's cool, dude. I love the fact that you're adventuring the way you do, and you know, there's possibilities of new adventures on the horizon. But um, anything you want to say or plug before we, we sign off about the world, about your adventures, about life that you know people might find inspiring or or cool. No, I just say do your. Um, I think it's important to do your part locally, wherever you are, to kind of help help people out that need it. Whether it's kids or um, you know, friend or family. You know, there's a lot of messed up stuff going on around the world right now, and um, a lot of people need our help. So if you're in a position to help people, do it. You're the man, JJ. Thanks for your time, dude. All right, thanks, Chapin. Yeah, brother. Thank you again for joining me for this episode of Misfits and Rejects. I appreciate you and you taking the time to come and listen to these really cool, inspirational people that I get to sit down and have some really rad conversations with. Please remember that you can support Misfits and Rejects on Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash Misfits and Rejects. Any type of donation is always helpful. If you can't donate, totally cool. If you could share Misfits and Rejects with a friend you think might enjoy this podcast, that's super awesome and very helpful. And also a big shout out to Anthony Bourdain, huge hero of mine. Sad to see you go, buddy. Wish that it could have been different for you, but you're in my thoughts. And thank you for all those rad books and content that you created. I hope I can deliver something as powerful to people out there and change their lives in the way that you helped change mine. Take care. You are all so very beautiful. I love you. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.